So uh, turn your ears and your hearts to hear the word of God today. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This passage is uh, about baptism. And in the early church, baptism was a ritual of induction or inclusion, uh, initiation. It, it was a, a rite of passage. It was a sign or a rite um, that people would take as they stepped into the community of the church. And even now, for us, baptism is a step or a picture, a sign that a person has joined a community of the beloved after having turned away from darkness and sin and uh, given over himself or herself to the light of Christ. Baptism in the early church meant and for us means that a person had learned enough about what to expect life to be like as a Christian. She or he had been taught the scriptures, uh, had shown some understanding of the faith, and had proven ready to declare to a hostile world that her or his allegiance was to a new God a new king, a new ruler. But the baptism in Luke chapter 3 is not a rite of initiation. The baptism in Luke 3 is not the step that a believer would take to join the church. In Luke chapter 3, baptism is a readying ritual. It, it is here a gesture of John's audience whereby they, they embody their desire to prepare and meet God. 
Their baptisms were related to repentance and confession, to cleansing from sin. They weren't joining John's movement. John did have followers. He did have converts. But there's nothing here in Luke 3 that says these folks uh, in this audience followed John. This baptism wasn't a sign that they had come out of darkness to join this new faith movement. But this baptism was about preparation. Baptism was this readying event, a gesture, an act, a behavior that readied them or prepared them for the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus. So, so, so the question for us as we read this account in Luke 3 uh, is, is what are the What are the the gestures? Who are the people? Where are the places that ready us to come to Jesus? In other words, can we point to rituals or customs or people which help prepare us for an encounter with God? We can wander off pretty quickly and make an assumption about living a life for God or, or following God or living for Christ or serving Jesus. But before serving starts, you have to meet Him. Before you live a life with Jesus, you have to come to meet Him. Him. And Luke 3 shows us a people not being cavalier about such a meeting. They prepare. Say the word prepare. There are two parts to this passage. The first is the people and their baptism. John, the people, the audience, and their participation in baptism. And the second part is Jesus and his baptism. The audience here uh, uh, does not get to follow the Lord. There's no indication in this passage that they are following after John or Jesus, but they do turn toward their sin and they face their sin and their hearts and their hands come together as they repent and they confess of their sins. They are baptized and the baptisms are important. But I want you, church, to consider the baptisms in this text as uh, visions for life with God. The baptisms in this text, consider them as pictures or images of life with God. And life with God is about doing things for God, but it's much more about something else that we'll see this morning. We read of John out in desert conditions. He's preaching about the Messiah, the one who is sent from God. And and his audience is listening to him and they are responding to his message by being baptized. He's preaching about this person who is to come and he says to his audience when they question who is this one sent from God, he says to them, it's not me. I am not the Messiah. In fact, I am not worthy to tie his shoes, to latch his sandals. And he points his listeners to Jesus. And Jesus is also 
There he comes and he is baptized by, God, by, by John. And, and I want to suggest to you that his baptism becomes a picture of life with God worth our admiring. And so, so turn uh, your heart to this image of Jesus being baptized. Scripture says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Sometimes when I read scripture, I run past words and phrases and I look for the important words or phrases. I look for the, the summary. I look for the main idea. I look for the main point. And, and we can be tempted to look at this passage and to see the baptism as the main point. We can look at this passage and see John's proclamation as the main point. He's the forerunner after all. And sometimes we'll, we'll skip over passages in our reading. And, 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 and there's a phrase or two here that we could easily skip over, like Jesus also was baptized. Or, or uh, in one translation, as he was praying. Imagine that for a moment. Jesus Christ, uh, the Lamb of God, praying. Imagine Jesus, uh, water around his ankles, uh, 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 in the midst of a crowd of people, some of the uh, folks he knows, others he may not know. And scripture says, Luke records in a detailed fashion that he's known for, Jesus prayed. I hear that and I get envious of this audience because we get to read Jesus' prayers in the Gospels. He prays in Gethsemane. We, we notice him pulling away out of his disciples in their ministry to pray. But in this passage, there is, is an audience listening and seeing Jesus being baptized but also doing what is most intimate and that is him talking to God the Father. In some ways, there really isn't much more to it than this, um, this, this godly conversation happening between the Father and the Son. Jesus praying, hearing from God, talking to God. And scripture says he had been baptized and as he was praying, we hear God, the Father, speak. And this text is one of those first times where we hear the Father speaking, where we see a specific vision of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending. And so all three persons in the triune God are present and visible or noticed. And my, my first point, maybe my only point this morning to you, is that God says things about us. And these things are worth hearing. 
God says things about Jesus and what God says about Jesus. God says about those who are connected to Jesus. And here God begins to speak. The scene is almost finished. I mean, John has preached. He's about to give the benediction. He has, uh, you know, called people to a response to what he has said. He's preached. They've been baptized. Jesus makes a kind of entrance and he is also baptized. This is a significant moment because Jesus has never been baptized and so it's kind of important you know and so and so the scene is almost over and 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 it almost seems as if God the Father and God the Spirit aren't showing up and yet before Luke finishes the account God begins to speak sometimes it sounds like, sometimes it feels like the Lord has nothing to say at the significant times in our lives. And this was a significant moment for Jesus. He had been baptized. I mean, this is the enfleshed divine one. He's being baptized. And where's God the Father? Where is the Holy Spirit? We almost hear the passage close and then God begins to speak. And maybe you're here today and you're going through your own significant time and you're wondering whether or not God is going to say anything. God is going to appear. God is going to show himself. You're going through a hard time. Maybe somebody's sick that you love. Maybe you've just broken up with somebody you didn't love. Maybe you're going through some kind of significant significant moment and you're wondering why God is so invisible, why God is so silent. And can I put Jesus' baptism before you and before us and say that this right here is a picture or a vision of life with God during significant times. This right here is is how God may act in moments that uh, are incomparable, in moments that that are different from what your life is normally like. Jesus had never been baptized before. This is significant. God shows up. He does not make a mistake in articulating these things about Jesus or these things about us. And what does he say? What does God say? God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now this verse is an allusion to an earlier one in Isaiah 42 and 1. The Isaiah 42 and 1 verse says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And, 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 and God, um, and, and sometimes God does this. In fact, I think God mostly does this. God repeats himself and says what he says in Isaiah 42 in this very meaningful moment in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 3. He says in summary form, you're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. Now, Pastor Peter has talked about this passage before, and we've talked about the themes in this passage before. And some of you, when you come 
to this passage can stand to be reminded of this temptation uh, when, we get, uh, when we get involved in life with Christ, when we try to give ourselves over to God. Uh, the, 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 the most important thing uh, almost always becomes the least important thing, and that is this question of how do I know I'm doing God's will? How do I know I'm going in the direction that God wants me to go in? How do I know I'm spending my life doing something that matters? How do I know I don't waste myself and the gifts that God has given me? How do I know I'm living in a worthy way? And I want to suggest to you that that is not the best question. It certainly is not the first question. And the first question comes out of this passage. It is not what, what do I do uh, to make my life worthy? How do I know I'm living in God's will as much as how do I know who I am to God? If there's a second question, it's how do I know what God feels about me? See, if we know who we are to God, if we know how God thinks or feels about us, what we do for God will be enveloped in a relationship and a feeling. If we know that God loves us, if we know that God cares for us, what we do will be enveloped by that love, by that care. And here in Luke 3, uh, God, God speaks that over Jesus. He labels Jesus as his beloved son, the son that pleases him. And God the Father here makes a disciple. How does God make a disciple? God makes disciples by naming and he begins the process, and this is a kind of weird way to talk about it, of, 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 of starting this discipleship movement. And, and the question for us as God's church, years later, looking at this passage, is whether or not we're listening to what God says, to how God labels us. We can get tricked into believing, and I'm saying we, we can get tricked into believing that being a follower of Jesus is about the running or the walking. After all, you follow with your feet. But following after Jesus in this passage, in the, the common preaching calendar, is more about identity and relationship than it is what we do. Y'all hearing me today? Even baptism in this passage says more about readying than it does water, more about preparing than it does sprinkling or dousing or dosing or immersing. The presence of God, confirming the physical, visible presence of God is more important than repenting from sin or confession. Pastor Peter, in a previous messages, has pointed out in this passage that Jesus isn't doing anything yet in Luke chapter 3. He has not preached a sermon. He has not taught. He has not performed a miracle. He has not raised anyone. He has not leveled anyone. He has not rebuked anyone. He's not working by the power of the Spirit. And yet, his identity is heralded by God and by John. For us, for the church, for people who read the Scripture, for people whose lives come under Scripture, the question is whether we're living from this or whether we're living from the compulsion to do. Now, I have three more 
uh, things to say, three more qualities to pull from Luke chapter 3, especially verse 22. Uh, We'll look at them, and then I'll sit down, and we'll go home. The first quality is that relationship with God, or the, the, the life with God, Um, or the life that God offers is loving. Say the word loving. Verse 22 says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That word beloved is where we're focusing. George Ladd, who's a New Testament scholar and theologian, says about this word beloved uh, that it can be substituted with the word only. You are my only son. This is where in John 3, we get the language of God so loving the world that he gives his only begotten son. That that, that only is coming back uh, in the meaning of what the Lord is saying here in Luke chapter 3. My sister asked me uh, three or four weeks ago uh, a question. We were with her daughter, my niece, my oldest niece, and she was registering for class at community college, and so I'm sitting out there uh, with my sister, and uh, we're talking. We're talking about nothing in particular, so when I'm talking to my sister about nothing in particular, she brings up everything, you know, or anything, or God knows what, and so we're talking, and uh, she just kind of goes on off, and we're talking, she says, you know, you and Dawn have been married for a long time, and I, yeah, yep, yep, you know, uh, me and my wife got married when I was 14, and we've been married... Uh, for 12 years now, and so uh, it's been a while. Lord, help me and have mercy on my soul. Um, but, uh, you know, she's you know, kind of making this comment, and so she asked me this question. Um, she says, you know, so what's, what's, the, what's the key to kind of the success of your marriage? And my sister knows I hate questions like that because those kind of questions are just like, hi, preacher, describe God to me in two minutes. You know, it's, there's no one answer. And so she looks at me, and I kind of frown. She says, I know you don't really have one answer, but if you did, you know, what, what it would be? You know, so, I, you know, I, I sort of get frustrated with it, and I fumble some kind of a response. Uh, I have no idea what I said to her. And, uh, and I, I, her question stayed with me. It's one of those questions. You know, it's kind of you don't think about a question like that until somebody asks you. And uh, so it stayed with me, and it came back before me as I looked at this passage. Um, The passage shows God the Father being very clear that his Son is beloved. The Father says that Jesus is his beloved Son. And now you can look at this in your own Bible study if you want to, to find some sense of this like George Ladd does. But but what, what I would say to my sister is similar to what I'm thinking about this passage here. I'd suggest that a way of looking at this word uh, 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 is, is that loving someone like a spouse or a son means regularly giving all that you have. I'd tell my sister that. I'd say, well, if there's some sort of fundamental uh, act that makes a marriage or even a friendship or even, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a covenant between a husband and a wife who regularly gives all that they have, whatever that is. You've got a husband doing this. You've got a wife 
doing this. And the vocation of marriage is, is, is fundamentally a covenant to do that, to give regularly all that you have. That is a picture of the life. There are other things that come with it, certainly. There are arguments that husbands always win, of course. All the husbands said amen. All the single sisters said no, no, no. Uh, um. But God has done that in giving us Jesus. God has uh, uh, given us in presenting the only begotten, beloved Son of God, God has given us all that God has. If the life that God offers is a life of love, what does that mean? It means us getting all that God has in the Son of God. And this church is how God intends for our lives to be. This seems to be at least the first few strokes if we're trying to paint, trying to imagine what life with God is about, how God portrays real life. This has to be a part of the picture. God offering the Son who is in fact all that God can offer. This becomes a real test of generosity. This becomes a real test of whether or not we're giving love, whether we're giving away Christ. It also happens to be a good test of whether or not someone loves you. That question of whether or not you're, it, it, it makes being stingy the worst of sin. Because there's something essentially generous about God and God's life. So that, so that a good person is a giver. God has a lot to do to redeem the person who is stingy because it's so unlike God. Touch the person next to you. Say, wake up and give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not offering time, no. No, what I mean by that is, is love means give. It means to give the best gift. And Luke 3 shows us that the best gift that God's giving is the Son. So life with God is loving. Number two, life with God or the life God offers is parental now, parental language can be hard because it's basically language about accountability. But, but, but this text, as, as I'm reading it today and as I'm trying to uh, encourage you uh, to read it, is a text that says we are loved by a God. We live for a God who claims us. This, uh, this has to make a difference to us that, that love doesn't come without a claim. That God doesn't just love you, God possesses you. Whether you do good or bad, whether you succeed or flourish, whether you flame, whether you fail, God says, you are mine. 
Some of you are listening to me today and you're taking on new responsibilities at work. Some of you are listening and you don't have a job. You're looking for work. Some of you are here and you're discouraged because people in your life are sick, afflicted, going through hard times. Some of you are coming uh, out of a bad relationship. Some of you have just been broken up with and you're struggling. And wherever we are, I submit to you that these words brighten our lives. These words from God, you are mine. Now, Scripture is certainly saying something different about the Father and the Son, exalting the relationship between Jesus and and God the Father. But there is something in this upward language for you. There's something in this language for me, namely this truth that we belong to someone. What we do in this church has to stem out of that belonging. We already belong. We are not lost. We're not separated. We're not isolated or alienated. We belong. Someone is saying about us, about you, that you are mine. I have a son. He, uh, if he lives, will be three in March. Y'all pray for me that I let him (laughs) see March. Uh, And if you know me, you think I'm joking. (laughs) Uh, I told my mother, I said, pray for your grandchild and pray for your son because it ain't looking good. You know, he's, uh, uh, but anyway, he'll he'll live. Um, But uh, he emerges from daycare sometimes with an attitude. And, uh, you know, I try uh, most days to pick them up, even if I had to take them home and go back out. So I, I pick them up, Dawn gets out of work and she'll go in I'll sit with the car while she goes and brings him out. Bryce sometimes will uh, and I don't know where he gets this from. I don't know. He comes out sometimes and all of a sudden he's like pulling, I don't want to go, I don't want to go and I don't want to get in the car, I want to get in a taxi. I want to get on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking at him and I say, okay, get in the taxi, go get on the bus, you know. Um, and, and he's sort of resisting, he's resisting the seat. He's resisting getting in the car. And I'm looking at him as if, you know, he really can resist. Like, like he is mine. He's my son. He doesn't know. He's smart. And he can tell you what neighborhood he lives in, but he doesn't know his address. He has to go home with us. <laughs> he does. You know, nobody wants him. I've tried. I've, put, I've tried. I've tried. Uh, I tried to find out. He is his mother's child. He is, no, 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 wait, no, wait, no. What I mean is he is my child too. I was trying to make a point to say he is, he is ours. However long he puts up the fight, however long he resists, the message that he wakes up and lives all day, you know, is I belong. See, see, the thing is, you are also so possessed. 
by somebody. You have a, you have a holy parent. You have a father who loves you. So, so um, in a way, you don't need a guy or a gal to put their arms around you and say, you're mine. Because in a fundamental way, that has already been done. You, you, in a way, do not need a supervisor or a job or a contract to tell you you have value or you have worth. That might be nice, especially if it's a good job, but that has essentially already been done. You don't need a good grade. You don't need a certain salary. You don't need a spouse or a child to tell you that you belong to somebody because someone already regularly makes the claim that you are mine. And the question for us is whether or not we're able to hear that truth. Now, certainly, it's nice to have these things. It's complimentary to have these people in our lives who tell us that we matter, who tell us that we're important, who tell us that for them we have value. That's nice. That's complimentary. But again, those relationships, even the relationships in the church, only return us to the words that God the Father already speaks about his children. Life with God is a life that claims you by a parent who says to you, regardless of you kicking and screaming and looking for taxis and buses, you are mine. Number three, the life God offers is pleasing. What does pleasing mean? It, it means uh, enjoyable. Life with God is enjoyable. Now, I want you to do the math here before we get into this. There, there is the love of God in this life, love that is enduring, love that is unconditional, love that is present. There is the love, there is God's accountability, um, there is the firm and unflinching settling of the deep down question of belonging. And then there is God saying to Jesus, to you, to us, that we are pleasing to him. What does that mean? It, it can't mean fun, enjoyment, pleasure. It can't mean fun. I mean, Jesus' life isn't fun. He laughs. He does tell jokes. But he is executed. And God has to see that in his life. So God can't mean that this relationship is about fun or entertainment. I read a book last year by a Catholic philosopher, and it was a book about rest, really about play and about festivity. And uh, uh, I struggle with play. I don't really know what it means to play, so I read books about it, right? And uh, (laughs) so I told my spiritual director once, what is play? And she just kind of looked at me, baffled. And uh, and, and, and so I'm reading this book last year, and this, this the, 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 one of the main thrusts of this writer's book here about festivity and play and even rest is that festivity 
only means something to itself, that for something to be a feast, for something to be a holiday, for play to be play, it has to serve no purpose outside of itself. So that play can't be functional, that having a Sabbath celebration can't be productive, that true enjoyment through uh, true uh, pleasure True festivity stops with the event itself. It, it's, it's meaningless to the onlooker. It, it doesn't have a meaning. It doesn't get you anything. For something to truly be festival, it's, it's pointless. For rest really to be rest, it's uh, pointless. And I thought about that book and that reading as I came to this as well because life with God is enjoyable, it's pleasing because God gets something out of that life in and of itself. And and the pleasure of God is a restatement of the joy that God gets and that joy is without condition. In other words, God is pleased just because he gets to be father and Jesus is his son. God is pleased. God enjoys you just because, sounds like a song, you're you. Now, if you think about that for a minute and a half, it gets really scary because what that means is God would have been pleased with Jesus if Jesus didn't do the right thing. God knowing Jesus' past, God knowing Jesus' present, God knowing Jesus' future, uh, saw all of his life, certainly. But what this statement from God says is, regardless of your past, regardless of where you are, no matter where you will go and what you will do, I enjoy and take pleasure in you. Even if you don't preach the sermon, even if you don't teach the Sermon on the Mount, even if you don't heal, even if you don't deliver, even if you don't change the world by your death and resurrection, what I think about you is sure and stable and unconditional. If Jesus hadn't changed the world as we know it, his being a well-pleasing son wasn't tied to what he would do. He would still have been pleasing. That's what it means to be pleasing. Now, of course, when you experience a pleasure like that, when you experience uh, an enjoyable love like that, you know, you, 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 you want to live in accordance with that. But Luke chapter 3 doesn't give us any sense of that. I mean, the passage ends, right? The passage just ends not with us going on to chapter 4, chapter 5, and seeing how Jesus does what he does. No, the passage is over. The scene is done. The baptism and God speaking is finished when God says, whatever you decide, essentially, I love you. Whatever choice you make, I claim you. Here's an implication of this as I close. Before, uh, 
you do anything in this church before you respond to those three major initiatives that Pastor Peter talked about, the, the join, the serve, the share. Before you get involved in any way, those ways, anyway, are you known enough for somebody to say, we, I love you regardless. See, we have to be the church that loves you when you do nothing at all. So that, so that now, now I'm not there. I'm not, you know, I'm going to want you and I'm going to need you and I'm going to ask you to do stuff. And I might even sound like I love you when you do it and don't when you don't. I'm being redeemed. But, but the vision, the picture of life with God, the vision and the picture that we have to live and be as a church is even when you do nothing, even when you do the wrong thing, even when you live an unredemptive life, we love you. We claim you. Now, I know that people in this room you don't want to claim, but living Living the word of God is living, Carlton, I claim you too. Now, I can say that to Carlton because I wouldn't give away Carlton for all of the tacos and Taco Bell. Uh, but, but I make my point, right? You, you claim the person when you live this who God claims, and God claims us all regardless of what we do or don't do. Only by the Spirit's love, only by the Spirit's help can we love each other's past, love each other's present, love each other's future in this redemptive way. See, if you know things about my past and maybe if I know things about your past, it changes love because unconditional love is literally impossible for us. Even the best friendships and relationships are based on mutual something. Like, you have to call me back at some point. There is a condition in this relationship. You have to show up. You have to do. You have to act. And with God, what makes God's love so incredible, so unfathomable, so big that we can't wrap ourselves around it, is that none of those conditions are present. This makes no real sense to the human being. Now, you might, you, might, you might say it does, but it doesn't. It's, it makes no sense. There's sense around it. There's sense near it. But it doesn't make sense that a love and a life can be so presented to you that you don't have to do anything to achieve it, to keep it. No. Who lives that way? And this is the picture of life that Jesus brings. A life where you question, who lives like this? Who is able to come to a church and be completely loved when you do nothing at all? Or when you do everything and you're so necessary that if you left, we don't know what we would do. Love has to be better for the person who is so necessary, not for the person who is completely unseen. No. The church, as Pastor Peter said, is the reflection of the perfect love of God, and the perfect love of God is without condition. 
The perfect love of God is claiming you over and over again as God's child. There really isn't anything to say after hearing that from God. And so I want to ask you to just take a moment um, to hear that for yourself today. That in your life, where you are, God says you. You, 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 you. Not the you that you pretend to be. Not the you even that you would like to be. But you. You are my daughter, my son. And in you, I am pleased, well pleased. So take a moment and sit with that. I I don't know when the last time, maybe you did it already today, you sat with that before I invite our worship team to come back. Bow your head or open your eyes wide and hear God saying that to you. Remind us, Lord, that our identity and our relationship with you is more secure more certain than the seats we sit on. That your love is amazing. Claiming and possessive and completely unconditional. In Christ's name, amen.